Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Imagine that it's 1942 and that the German Navy has gathered a fleet of battleships and landing craft, sent them across the Atlantic to occupy New York City, America's largest and most important commercial center. In response, the United States Navy deploys its fleet to other ports and the Army sends its divisions inland. It sounds ridiculous. Why would any government leave its largest city open to capture from the sea? But that's just the question that Mark Bielski addresses in A Mortal Blow to the Confederacy, The Fall of New Orleans, 1862. We'll talk with Dr. Bielski about it tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight from, once again, the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not too far from East Carolina University, but not speaking for ECU, even though they pay me to work there during the day, and not, uh, likewise, my guest not speaking for anyone but himself, as we always do here. Uh, This, the pandemic of 2020 and 2021 is uh, one hopes winding its course to an end here in the United States. It's May of 2021 as we record this. The baseball, college baseball season is continuing well for ECU and it looks like they'll play in the uh, postseason NCAA tournament. and They'll get to have the stadium full of fans once again. Uh, Those of us who are vaccinated will not need to worry about masks or distancing. Hopefully, everybody will be vaccinated. Uh, And uh, hopefully, I'll be able to start or resume, certainly in the fall, doing these shows from my office in the Brewster Building, where the first uh, 16 seasons of the show came from. I do like doing the show from, from the office instead of home because I don't interrupt the home family life by closing the door for an hour. And it also gives me a chance to stop on the way home to get dinner in the form of takeout from a cookout. That's cookout, the premier budget fast food drive through chain at the Southeast. They are not a paying sponsor of the show, but I figure if I mention them like, like they are, then maybe they'll start doing that. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. If you ever wish to contact me, the announcer gives you the email address every show, more than once, so everybody has it memorized by now. That also means that if somebody emails directly to the uh, Civil War Talk Radio Facebook page, 
I can be pretty sure it's not someone who's listening to the show. This past week, got an email there from what turned out to be a, a UK-based media online magazine. Uh, the message said this, Howdy, I hope your podcast is doing well. I'm just reaching out to let you know we have mentioned your podcast in our article about civil podcasts. I hope it drives some new listeners. So out of curiosity, uh, both Mark Gaffney, who maintains the page, and I carefully avoided clicking on any links in the email, but we maneuvered our way to the website through Google, and it turns out it's this this media website. They have lots of articles, like 20 best beauty industry podcasts, 20 best test management podcasts. So I checked out, and they did, in fact, have one called 20 best civil podcasts, and I was happy to see that Civil War Talk Radio was in second place on their list of 20. Uh, It's also in their fifth place on the list of 20 in a different format. Uh, So they were mentioned twice, but what's especially gratifying is the competition includes podcasts that are about civil engineering, civil procedure, civil rights, and the private podcast for members of the 142nd Civil Engineer Squadron, which says, Are you sick of trying to read emails and PDFs to know what to expect when you show up for drill? This podcast is for you. So, sorry, 142nd Civil Engineer Squadron, but you're like in 18th place, and Civil War Talk Radio is in second. We are just kicking your butt. Um, Clearly, there's some first-rate curation going on at that website. Uh, Any podcast with the word civil apparently makes the list. I will say I'm a little concerned about the 142nd civil engineers. Uh, if they're not willing to read their email and PDFs, I'm not sure I want to cross a bridge that they've built, but that's that's a story for another day. Uh, coming up on another day on this podcast is uh, next week, May 26th, uh, Jim Oakes returns to the show. His most recent book, The Crooked Path to Abolition, Abraham Lincoln and the Anti-Slavery Constitution. He was to have been here a couple weeks ago, got mixed up, but he'll be here for sure next week. Then we'll have Edward Longacre uh, with a new book on David Gregg, the unsung hero of Gettysburg. And we'll follow the Gettysburg theme the following week with Kent Masterson-Brown's new book, uh, Mead at Gettysburg, A Study in Command. That just came out. My copy just arrived today. Anxious to read that. And we'll finish up the 2020 2021 season uh, with Larry Daniel returning to the show uh, and his work on the Army of Tennessee called Concord, Why the Army of Tennessee Failed. So we're talking tonight with Mark F. Bielski. He's the author of A Mortal Blow to the Confederacy, The Fall of New Orleans, 1862. Uh, Mark, are you there? Yes, I am. Excellent. Welcome. Welcome back to the show. Uh, I was looking at the. Thank you. It was. It always always good to talk with you. It was 2016 last time you were on, and uh, I would have guessed it was like six months ago. But uh, time flies uh, at Civil War Talk Radio and everywhere else, I guess. Uh, My first question to you is: Do you have your internet back where you are living in New Orleans? I don't. My my area is still down. They they swear they'll have it up by Friday. Um, it's been like a whole it's, week. It's a yeah. It's been a whole week, and it's apparently uh, we had a pretty hor- uh, horrendous storm go through last week, and uh, it uh, knocked everything out. And it's a cable situation, so it's not like an individual any individual connection. So they've been working on apparently be pretty serious because it's been a little rough going to the old office or, or friends have some borrowing internet when I need to get on. So but, I, I can uh, imagine it will well, work out. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's just a real, a real hardship in the modern world, especially if you're doing anything involving communications uh, or research exactly. or writing or anything. So, well, I hope it comes up soon that, that uh, you have my sympathy, certainly. Uh, speaking of things that have been delayed by acts of nature, uh, your day job at the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours uh, Company, where you, you're, you're, uh, says on the back of the book you are the director, um, 
uh, at Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, and you and I, in fact, have uh, worked together on tours for them, and we've, uh, many listeners to the show, have gone on those tours, and of course they've been, uh, you know, put on hiatus by the pandemic. What What is the current status, as far as you know, for uh, resuming tours? Uh, we're looking to resume with domestic tours, which would include, of course, our Civil War tours this fall. And uh, that would include the Civil War tours, which would be um, the Hallowed Ground Tour, which, which you lead, um, the Civil War Mississippi River Campaign, which I lead, and the uh, Lewis and Clark and um, um, Crazy Horse and Custard Tour uh, out west. We're going to do that also and we have a revolutionary war tour that are going so anything that's domestic we're we're fairly certain are going to run this fall now uh with the news out of the eu that came out today um we may be able to run some of our european tours but uh we'll have to wait and see how things develop with that but people have to be vaccinated that's for sure well, that, that is encouraging. If you're thinking of doing any of those tours, get yourself on a list, get your vaccination now so that you're clear and ready to go. I'm looking forward to October and running, uh, uh, leading this hallowed ground as we go up to Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and, and tour the sites there. I really, really missed doing those the last season and again this spring, so hopefully everything will be back. Um, yeah, I hope so. So let me start with title of your book, which is called uh, A Mortal Blow to the Confederacy. And authors sometimes get help picking their titles or the publisher will have something to say. But is this my, my question here is Mortal Blow to the Confederacy. Uh, everybody wants their, their Civil War book to have a big title, you know, like Horse Cave, Kentucky, the Gettysburg of the Border States. Um, and it's really not. It's just a minor skirmish. Um, is Was the fall of New Orleans really a mortal blow to the Confederacy? Well, if it, it really was uh, in, in, several, in a few different ways. One, New Orleans was the largest city in the Confederacy by far. You could take the other biggest cities, include Charleston, Memphis, Richmond, um, Montgomery, uh, and so on, Atlanta and put them all together, they still didn't equal the population of New Orleans, which was 170,000 in the 1860 census. census. It was, before the war, it was the third biggest city in the United States. Um, It also was the largest exporting port in the world. So if you think about it, all the cotton grown west of the Appalachians all the tobacco grown west of the Appalachians, all the grain up in the Midwest, anything that was going to be exported came down the Mississippi River to go through New Orleans for export. Um, that's how it became such a huge exporting port. Additionally, when secession started, the um, in, when the first uh, states seceded, starting with, mm-hmm. with South Carolina in December of 1860, and then... Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, et cetera. Um, the capital was Montgomery, but the, you need money to start a country, as, as you might guess, anybody might guess. And the three banks, which uh, existed in the French Quarter on opposite corners, were the ones that financed the uh, initial secession. Um, so it was also a financial center. Plus, it was international. They had international trade. Did a lot of trade with the North, too, with New York and Boston, for example. Um, So the connections ran pretty deep. Uh, It wasn't, uh, if you take any of the other southern cities, they had nothing close to what New Orleans had in terms of importance, whether it's financial, industrial, or or, uh, in terms of import-export. So when I... To the introduction, I, I cribbed from your book that uh, metaphor of, of uh, Germany in World War II attacking New York City, uh, and that, that really made an impression on me reading the book, that, that just as New York was the financial and commercial capital of the country, you're saying New Orleans really was that significant to the, the Confederate economy. 
Yes. And, and not to mention the, you know, as you know, as a Lincoln scholar, Abraham Lincoln really emphasized the importance of the Mississippi River. And if you control New Orleans, you basically control the close to the mouth of the river, the entrance to the Gulf of Mexico in and out. Um, so, uh, you know, President Lincoln thought, you know, New Orleans was very important and they put together a mission to capture the city. Now, that, the, that, that, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say that the, uh, my thing about the comparison in New York in the, um, in the prologue, it was kind of a whimsical thing, and I think it's because mm-hmm. I always felt that it just baffled me that the Confederacy let their biggest city go with so little planning and tactics, and not so much without a fight, because there was a little bit of a fight, but it just, like, um, it, it was just one blunder after another, it seemed, and I just couldn't, you know, I, I would think that if if a city was that important, that they would have put a lot more thought into how we're going to hold on to it. Um, because and, it, and it, the, it just, go ahead. I say it, it, well, it is, as you say, this critical city. And that's what much of your book then talks about, the fight that did go into defending New Orleans. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back in just a few minutes and talk more with author Mark F. Bilski author of A Mortal Blow to the Confederacy, The Fall of New Orleans, 1862. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. Attention veterans, are you ready to be your own boss? It's time to launch your own ideas into reality. Discover your clean writing style. Gear up with Marine Corps trained motivator, Christina Silva. Christina is a positive energy promoter with a special gift in connecting with innovators. Get the Military Heroes 411 and glean from experts every week by listening to The Christina Silva Show. We're educating our veterans live on The Christina Silva Show, live at 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Dr. Mark F. Bilski, author of A Mortal Blow to the Confederacy, The Fall of New Orleans, 1862. Mark, you live in New Orleans. Your your two-syllable pronunciation of the city, Nolens, gives away your your locale. Uh, Did you find it more challenging or, or... more of an opportunity to write about this topic, uh, given that, that it's, it's where you are every day? It was interesting because I, um, uh, I learned a lot in, in doing the research and writing about it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, New Orleans is an interesting city at any time, but just reading, you know, and I, I knew a little bit about it, but doing the research and going in depth and, and, learning about their characters involved, whether, especially the local characters, and then even things about the occupation of the city after the, 
after the city surrendered and, and things like that. And then um, just, you know, some of the some of the players on both sides, the Confederate and, and Union, uh, all very interesting. And then it, it's also interesting, I, I knew this already, but David Farragut and um, his foster brother, uh, David Dixon Porter, um, both grew, Farragut was born in Tennessee, but he grew up in New Orleans. And he had sailed these waters as a kid, um, and he had a long career in the Navy, but he was familiar with this area, and as, as was his foster brother, Porter. And the interesting thing was is that the Confederates uh, placed in command um, who, who were who that the Confederate Navy sent here, uh, none of the officers were familiar with the area. So um, you you have two opposing the the enemy knows the area the home team does not. Um, I just found that very interesting, and it, we can get to that a little later. But but the uh, the disjointed lack of unity of command is what really caused the city to it, what really caused the Confederates to lose was the Union had a complete unity of command and that's you know anybody who studies the military knows that that's essential to uh, a smooth operation that shows up right at the start is it when david twiggs is in command say when when the confederates put david twiggs in command uh most of us think of him as the guy who surrendered texas uh to the confederacy but he he gets Mm -hmm put in charge and and so you've got somebody in charge there's your your unified command but they can't do the simplest thing they can't defend the uh, ship island for example right well twigs twigs not that he was he was not a he was experienced of course he he was mm-hmm. born in 1790 had fought in the war of 1812 the mexican war and so on but he was 71 at the time the war started he just did not have the energy to really put together the fortifications and shore things up the way they needed to be. One, one thing that, that did occur that after Fort Sumter fell, as most of you, your listeners would know, uh, General P.G.T. Beauregard, who's a local guy, New, Orle- New Orleanian from actually St. Bernard Parish, just east of here, um, he, was, he was in charge at Fort Sumter. And then he... Um, was sent to New Orleans, and he also became victor uh, at First Manassas or First Bull Run. But he he had before he was transferred up to North Mississippi before Shiloh, he was in New Orleans, and he thought, well, I'll I'll just work as an advisor. So he gave a lot of advice on what to do to protect the city. One is to cut the brush down at the forts so that you're not firing through trees when any enemy ships come up river. Second, he said that uh, he, he had all the guns exchanged. He, put, he modernized as much as possible, shored up the earthworks, and he said we need to put some sort of a barrier in the river. So they put together this huge chain tied together with floating barges that they could open up if friendly ships were coming in or out and close if the enemy was coming. Um, he also had some advice for the uh, um, fortifications around the city. Some of it was done, some of it was not. And then, of course, he was transferred out, and that's when they put Twiggs in charge here. And as I said, he just did not have the energy. And eventually, the, the city fathers wrote to Jefferson Davis and asked him to, if he could be relieved, and which they did. Um, Twiggs gladly gave up his command, and he went home to Georgia. He died within a year, actually. So uh, who replaced when, him? Um, that they they chose Mansfield General Mansfield Lovell, who was a West Pointer, an engineer. He was born in Washington D.C. and he was working in New York City at the time the war broke out, and he cast his lot with the Confederacy. Um, very experienced, very energetic, and he came down here immediately. Went to went to work uh, almost around the clock. Then, uh, it, as I'm reading about Lovell, I see. 
out of the corner of my eye in the next column, uh, Braxton Bragg's name comes up, and yeah. there is the the kiss of death for any Confederate operation. What was Bragg's involvement in the, the well, defense? Bragg, even though he was a North Carolinian, he had married into a Louisiana family, and he was living in Louisiana, not far from New Orleans. So he was pretty much tied in with the community here, and he was a local favorite. Whereas they kind of considered Lovell an outsider. Um, because he had not been, lived here, he had he'd been working up north, and, and that uh, he had. Bragg was really lobbying for the position to be in command in New Orleans and, and southern Louisiana and the Gulf Coast. His wife was lobbying even harder. Um, it didn't happen, and Jeff Davis just thought, felt that Mansfield Lovell would be a better choice, and he was actually because Bragg would, uh, well, I. City may have fallen earlier. So, uh, so you've got Lovell in command, and, and you mentioned the things that uh, that Beauregard had recommended that, that Lovell was trying to do. And one of them, of course, would be to, to prepare the the two forts south of the city that guard the Mississippi uh, Fort St. Philip and Fort Jackson. And mm-hmm. let me start with a contemporary question. Uh, I visited those forts uh, with you and many others from Stephen Ambrose historical tours uh, in 2018. Uh, it's my first chance to see them. I'm looking at a photograph right now that I was able to take. And it was remarkable to see the condition they were in considering the the pounding that they suffered from Hurricane Katrina and other uh, things that have happened since then. Can a visitor go see either of those forts today? Um, they have restored Fort Jackson very well and, and have taken very good care of it. Now, with regard to Fort St. Philip, you can only reach it by water or helicopter, and it's, <laughs> it's in pretty much disrepair. Uh, you could go there, but uh, it's, it's basically alligator and snake infested swamp around it and I, I wouldn't recommend it unless you have to but Fort Jackson they have they have taken very good care of and they um, there's a museum just just not even a half, half mile up the road from there that's dedicated to the forts and the action that took place there but you can you can visit when they're open um, you would probably have to make an advanced reservation through uh, Plaquemines Parish I would believe uh, I'd have to check. Anybody could email me, and I'd find out for them if anybody's interested. Well, I, I remember on that visit three years ago, the the folks, the the, the local tourism folks in, in, in Plaquemines Parish were thrilled uh, to have uh, have us visit, and couldn't have been more hospitable, and and uh, really really put on a great uh, welcome for us, and. Clearly, they care about preserving their heritage and their their fort and uh, and getting people to visit. So, you know, listeners, if you're ever in the New Orleans area, which is a place everyone has to go sometime in their life, it's, it's a wonderful city. Uh, but if you can make that that trip down to see the fort, it, it's it's worth your time. So the fort. Uh, one of the things that struck me about the fort was how low it is. It's not like three stories high like Fort Sumter. It does have some right. things in common. It's a brick-faced fort. Looks like the other third series forts along the American coast, but it's really low to the ground. Uh, it's not very high above the river at all. No, and I I believe um, I'm not an engineer, but I believe they have it that way purposely so that it would have uh, basically have any uh, ships coming in and out of the river at eye level. That would be my, my guess. Um, I mean, you couldn't miss shooting you, a cannon. It, it, correct. You wouldn't have right, to correct. Would just go and, right and, into the side. You, right. As you know, you can only depress uh, the gun barrel so far before um, before the, the projectile rolls out, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so that may be, have gone into thinking of that uh, but they are low, and and you can, you have an excellent view of the river from Fort Jackson. Also, you can see, you can imagine when you're on the interior, what the what the 
men who manned the fort, what they were going through as Porter's mortar fleet was bombarding them. Uh, it was there was the it could have been the first day there were three thousand mortar shells fell on the forts, and uh, the, the one of the bit one of the keys was getting the Union fleet in the river and up the river t- to meet the force. That was, uh, I do address that if uh, yeah, I'd be glad to talk about that a little bit because, um, well, the, the, uh, what did the Confederates have to stop them with when they were coming up the river? Yeah. Well, the first, the first, uh, sign that the union was doing something was kind of a, uh, it was a, part of the Anaconda plan, there were some Union ships spotted near the mouth of the river in the Gulf of Mexico, and that was reported back to New Orleans. And the man that the Confederates had put in command was Commodore George N. Hollins, who had been in the Navy for 50 years, the U.S. Navy. He was from the Chesapeake Bay area, so he knew what he was doing with the ship, and he had commandeered these enterprising young men with some money had put together a um, vessel that they were going to put, that they were going to attack Union. They were going to be privateers, basically. Attack either Union military or commercial ships and then keep the spoils for themselves. Well, Holland said, no, I need this vessel that you put together. It was a, it was an armored, they armored, armored it with railroad ties and one gun. It was primarily used to ram. And he figured, no, I need that boat. So he commandeered it and put it in his fleet. Um, he was in charge of the river fleet or, or the, the Confederate Navy on the river. He, he was not in charge of the, um, the, river, the river fleet, which was under the state. Another issue which plagued them. But he, he, had the, he initiated the first combat. He went down to meet the ships the Union ships at the mouth of the river and did fairly well with them. Ended up, he was, his adversary was a captain, John Pope, who was also had a lot of experience, but Pope was thrown in a disarray. Um, the, the Manassas, or they called it the turtle because it, it was so low in the water and had it looked like a shell. Mm-hmm. It rammed the, um, Richmond and it had, a, but the Richmond had a coal ship tied alongside and uh, he had to pull away, and the, the Manassas ran into trouble, but they ended up chasing the Union fleet out of the river. And Hollins just completely retreated, not Hollins, I'm sorry, Captain John Pope, completely retreated and ran off and went back to Ship Island. And that became known as Pope's Run. And it was soundly ridiculed in the U.S. Navy. Um, some officers said it was the most ignominious episode the United States Navy had experienced to date, but it was called Pope's Run, his retreat. So the, 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 first. so the first experience, yeah, the first experience then is very successful for the Confederates, although, as you point out, you've got a separate commander for the river fleet, uh, they can, can, the, the state, the, the city, the, the Confederacy, the Army, the Navy, everybody's got a hand in, in this defense that's going on. Uh, Eventually, the Union fleet does make it up the river as far as, as Forts Jackson and St. Philip, and, and you started mentioning the mortar bombardment that uh, that Porter puts onto the forts and uh, is able to suppress them. What I found interesting is he doesn't actually capture the forts, but just uh, goes on past and, and heads on up the river, right. uh, up, up to New Orleans. Right, Farragut... Farragut, um, he kept his eye on his his goal was to capture New Orleans, reducing the forts was just secondary. So he left Porter down uh, down river while he his main goal was, as I said, New Orleans. They had to get through the chain, so they had several methods they used to break the chain. They finally succeeded, and once they succeeded and got the ships through the. Uh, they were on their way up river. Now, one important thing to remember is the Confederacy, the Confederate brain power in Richmond were, was completely convinced that the attack was going to come from up river. 
Beauregard had said no. Lovell insisted it's going to come from the Gulf. And my theory has always been that these, you know how uh, sometimes military thinking is to the last war. Let's right. see what they did then. Well, they were still thinking about the battle in New Orleans in 1814, 1815. Well, the British were under sail, and they rode, a lot of them. They came in from the east, from Ship Island area in Mississippi, mm -hmm. and came in from the east because they couldn't make it up the river under sail. Now, if, if you try to sail up the river tacking back and forth in a wooden ship, the guns in the forts would have blown them to bits. But Farragut, knowing that he's under steam, and he figured that we're going to take a few shots, but once we break through the chain, we can be on our way. We'll, we'll lose, maybe lose a boat or two, maybe uh, take some damage, but we'll get through. Because you, if you're going at 8, 10 knots and the river's at 4 knots, you go at six, knot, 6 knots, you can pass the forts. It's that simple. And that was so, his plan. So, so he, he knows the technology will get him through, uh, even if he takes losses. So he does that. He's able to sail up, essentially uncontested from that point on, up to the city. Uh, we'll take another break, find out what happens when the fleet arrives uh, at the city of New Orleans in 1862. We can learn more about it from our guest, Mark F. Bielski. He's the author of A Mortal Blow to the Confederacy, The Fall of New Orleans, 1862. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Mark Bielski, author of A Mortal Blow to the Confederacy, The Fall of New Orleans, 1862. So, Mark, the... the Federal forces finally break through the, the forts, through the chain across the river, and now they're sailing uncontested up to the city. Was there any, there was no major fighting at the city, was there? Once they broke through with the, with the uh, Confederate vessels that were upriver, just a little bit upriver, and they did okay, but they were just hopelessly outgunned. Uh, Farragut had divided his fleet into three separate divisions. The first one under Captain Theodorus Bailey, who's the one who actually was the first one to set foot in New Orleans when they got there. And then the second division was under Farragut. Then the third was under Captain H.H. H. Bell. Um, so they went up in three different divisions. There was some fighting, but they basically scattered the Confederate fleet. Now, the one thing I did want to mention, they, the Confederates had been building 
two super gunboats. As they were ironclad gunboats. One was the CSS Mississippi. The other was a CSS Louisiana. The Mississippi wasn't even close to finish when this action started. The Louisiana was at least in the water. It, so they sent the Louisiana down to the forts. But the um, commander of Louisiana, John K. would not cooperate with Lovell in charge, and, or, nor the commander of the forts, Johnson Duncan. And he would not move the Mississippi down where it would be effective when the Union boats were coming up to the chain. If Lovell wanted something done with the Navy, order he gave, any order he gave was an order. Lovell had to telegraph Richmond and get permission. They had to request whoever the, the Mitchell for the commander of Louisiana had to request him for him to obey Lovell's order in that case. The captain, there was a Captain Whittle who was overseeing naval operations, but he was in a... So you can't really oversee the operations very well from your hotel room. You didn't have, there was no video back then, obviously. Mm-hmm. So that, that was, you know, just another sign of the disunity of command that they had, whereas Farragut had complete control and was, had a complete plan in place. Uh, I just did want to mention that because the Union, uh, Porter, for example, said after the war that if they had gotten those two super gunboats in action, they would have not only kept us out of there, they would have wreaked, it would have uh, wreaked havoc with our fleet in the Gulf of Mexico. But, of course, it never happened. I just wanted to mention that. It's just another example of things that they, they did not do, they did not do right or did not accomplish. And it's interesting, in contrast to the Confederate lack of unity of command, uh, you've got Porter and Farragut working together at sea, and you've got Benjamin Butler, and listeners to the show have heard that name before, uh, commanding the the federal ground troops. But there's no disunity or infighting among these guys. They seem to all be on the same page. Right. Well, Butler was Butler was Butler. He was he would undercut anybody to, for personal gain. Um, right. But he was he had to listen. He had to take orders from Farragut, as did Farragut's foster brother Porter. And there was no uh, um, there was really no um, sign of of disunity on their part. Butler would complain, of course, and he was basically taking a back seat because it, it wasn't a, a ground operation. Mm-hmm. Um, the Confederates had sent a regiment down to a place called Quarantine Landing above the forts, which no longer exists. It's been washed away. But at that time of year, the river is so high that, that uh, the boats on the river are basically at eye level. At the end of April, all the northern snows are melting, so the Mississippi River is, is above flood stage, basically. So the the regiment at the landing was when... Theodorus Bailey's flagship came up, the USS Cayuga. Uh, all they had to do is aim their guns at these guys, and they surrendered. Now, he didn't want any prisoners, so he immediately par- paroled the whole regiment and then continued on to New Orleans, uh, which is when that's what you were getting to is what happened when they got there. Right. So, so, yeah, the... the uh, I mean, there are some stories most of us know uh, about uh, uh, civilian resistance and so on, which you touch on in, in the book. Let me just start, though, with Benjamin Butler, who, who eventually is put in charge of the occupation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and first, as someone who lives there, do, does his name still ring a bell in New Orleans? It does. You can buy a souvenir in the French Quarter of a, a, a bedpan with his picture on it, uh, which is what they're... <laughs> You can still so, buy those. I haven't seen one recently, but I understand they're available. Okay. But, so, you know, so, I, I emphasize this. Butler, um, for all his foibles, um, he was only here from May. He took over May 1st, and he was relieved at Thanksgiving of that same year. People act <laughs> like he was here in charge for the whole war, but he was relieved and sent back up north. Uh, but he did enrich himself very well 
he was in charge of all the liquor business, the, the bread, the bakeries, and everything else. And plus, his brother came down and made some money with him. Uh, but what what the one thing he did that people don't people down here I, I don't think realize or give him credit for he cleaned up the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he went on a, a big campaign to clean the city up, which definitely needed it. And he even instituted anti litter laws. So if you were caught throwing paper out the window or even littering on the street, you could be fined or imprisoned. And he he carried that out. He did enforce that. And, and he he established order. You know, famously executed one uh, person who had torn down the United States flag uh, that was, right. was set up at the U.S. Mint, and and you know made it clear he it was not just a laughing matter. He was yes, he was going to maybe steal your spoons, but uh, he was going to have order, and as also you show in, in the book, he, he famously added to the equestrian statue of Andrew Jackson that commemorates Jackson's actions in 1812 or 18, 1815, actually. Um, right. He added Jackson's famous quote, uh, you know, the union, it must and shall be preserved, which I'm sure rubbed people the wrong way locally in, in 1862. Right, it did. Um, he did have that chiseled into the, into the base or the plinth of the uh, monument. But, of course, it's still there. He he knew how to play the game, I will say. Um, There there are so many things in this book that I found interesting, especially a discussion of what to see today. And New Orleans is just one of the great cities in the world uh, to visit. I've only been a few times and would like to go many more. I've never not been thoroughly entertained every minute I was there. Uh, what, What can people see if in the city itself from the Civil War period? Well, uh, unfortunately, um, the, the, the monuments are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can still see, you can trace Theodore's Bailey and his Lieutenant Perkins. They walk through the crowd of uh, uh, basically hostile residents when they came ashore. It was pretty brave of them, actually. I'm have to give them credit because they were going to City Hall to demand the surrender. Um, you can trace that. Of course, Jackson Square and St. Louis Cathedral, you can see the Mint, which is now um, the Jazz Museum. But the building is still there and you can visit it. The, um, uh, the, the Post Office and Customs House are different now and uh, City Hall is different now. But... Uh, those are the other things, and I think if you just you can really see where the Union fleet came up river. If you just stand at the river, uh, if you go from Jackson Square, where St. Louis Cathedral is, down to the river edge, and look down river from where the Union fleet were coming, and you can see exactly the route that they were coming. They came, they veered off Algiers Point, and they came ashore just below or just upriver from Jackson Square. Um, that's where that's where uh, they came ashore. And then the, the episode with William Mumford, who tore the flag down after the U.S. Marines <laughs> came ashore, Farragut sent them to raise the Stars and Stripes. Uh, he went up and tore it down and threw it to the crowd, who basically the crowd kind of dragged it and, and uh, dragged it and... and shredded it as they walked to the uh, mayor's office, the city hall, and threw it through the window where the surrender negotiations were taking place. Uh, Butler heard about this whole episode, and he, he told Ferry, and he said, I'm going to find that man and hang him. And, and said it, they, he, he was not joking. Some of the people thought that maybe he, he didn't take it seriously. Butler, it may have been just a... Um, something to set an example. Uh, but he went through with the hanging, and I have that illustration, which is very rare in the book. I got that from the Historic, historic New Orleans Collection about Mumford's hanging. Um, so that was another issue that, uh, mm-hmm. besides the women's order that Butler issued, that, that hanging was incensed the uh, locals. Right, the, the the order that the local women would be treated as as prostitutes if they were 
insulting union officers, um, right, which, which again right. is, is both. Uh, uh, it, one can see how it would be offensive, but showed Butler's ability to uh, uh, to use a modern phrase to trigger people. He he knew just what to say to uh, to get people especially upset, and uh, and then it, it was a skill that he he put to work there. Uh, we just have a, well, a he a was a lawyer and a politician before the war. Yeah. So. Yeah, you, you refine those skills. Um, the, the quick thirty-second question: uh, Civil War time machine. If you could go back and visit New Orleans in 1862 for thirty minutes only, um, anytime in 1862, talk to one person. Who would you want to talk to? Uh, Mansfield Lovell. Because because one thing Jeff Davis did, just like politicians do now, he deflected blame for the loss of the city to Mansfield Lovell and wouldn't give him a hearing, a military hearing. It took a year for Lovell to get a hearing, and that was at the urging of Robert E. Lee. So Jeff Davis, even even up until Pi Dufour wrote his book uh, years ago, uh, talked about Lovell being exonerated. That's that's who I would want to talk to to see what exactly what his take would be on on what what occurred and how things developed and how he was treated. Well, he, he certainly got the the short end of the stick from from contemporary uh, figures like Jefferson Davis, sort of the the Fitzgerald Porter of the South in a way. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I will say I really enjoyed reading this book. I got to read it before it came out you did me the favor of asking me to write the forward which was a pleasure to do uh no, i because really appreciated it, that too well it, it seems to me that the, the uh, new orleans and the war in the west generally are underappreciated uh not necessarily by people listening to civil war talk radio but uh people who know a little bit about the civil war assume it's all in virginia maybe gettysburg crosses their radar but so many important things happened, especially uh, the fall of New Orleans, uh, which you describe here. So, listeners, if you want a concise and uh, well-written account of what happened in that critical time, the book is called A Mortal Blow to the Confederacy, The Fall of New Orleans, 1862. It's written by our guest tonight, Dr. Mark F. Bilski. Mark, thank you so much for coming back to the show. Thank you, Jerry. It's been great talking to you. Uh, You as well, and listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 